speaking this morning is from John 17, verses 18 through 26. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I and them. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Father, we just uh, um, are grateful that we can um, be here in this place to worship you, to exalt you, to sit um, here hungry um, for... Um, your word, and Lord God, we are hungry. We need your word. We need you to sustain us. Um, we always are hungry, whether we know it or not, Lord, for, for what only you can give through your word. So I pray that we, you would fill us, that you would, um, uh, that you would feed us from your word. Um, um, God, we just uh, we pray... Um, alongside Peter when he said, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. And so we're here because you have the words of eternal life, and we just ask that you would fill us. Would you open our minds and hearts to that life that you have given us and promised us? And um, God, uh, may the the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you um, as as we um, open your word together. So God, just, just have your way with us. Just, um, yeah, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, so uh, as Dan said, we're in this third week of this series. And uh, before we get started and in digging into John 17, which Heidi just read for us, um, I just have a question. How many of you um, have a relative, um, someone you know who has fought in a war? Raise your hand. A lot of people. I have. Um, I had uh, a great uncle um, who was a pilot for the Canadian Air Force, who was a bomber pilot. He crashed his plane on a mission over the English Channel, um, and he never fired a bullet, never dropped a bomb. He only flew people who did. He flew people around who did. My mom's brother-in-law, my uncle Addie, he was in the Navy. He was a he was a gunner's mate on the Roger B. Taney, the last warship to be afloat after Pearl Harbor. Um, He probably never fired a shot, but he helped keep weapons working and he helped the ammo be supplied and um, he helped those who did fire the shots. Um, There's a picture of a guy up here, maybe you've heard of him, his name's Audie L. Murphy, he's a second lieutenant for the Army. 
I think he's coming. Um, he's the most decorated soldier of World War II. He won the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, and the Silver Star. He saw combat in Italy and France and is credited with killing 240 Germans. Um, not, not, that's not him. That was somebody else. Um, Captain David McCampbell, that guy, that was the, yeah, that guy, he was a pilot for the Navy in World War II. He won the Medal of Honor, Navy Cross, and Silver Star. He shot down 34 Japanese planes against overwhelming odds. On October 24th, 1944, he shot down nine in 95 minutes. Naomi Parker Fraley, that's the picture. That's the next picture. He, she just died at age 96. She was the real Rosie the Riveter. Um, and she wasn't just a poster girl. She was actually working on the home front, uh, working on a, that's her. Uh, she was captured on a, a, a picture, and the, uh, she was immortalized in this poster. And they just found out that that was her last year. She died last year, months later, at 96. This right here is the weapon that, my, uh, that Lori's grandpa fought with. He was a baker for the Navy in World War II. And he uh, made sure that all the people that were fighting, um, like so many others, would have calories to burn as they did so. Um, were any of these people not fighting the war? Were any of these people not deployed? Were any of these people not contributors? Were any of them not essential? Which of them didn't go where they were sent, and which of them didn't get, go do the job that they were given? The answer is none of them, right? In the, in the 40s, 1940s, we won the war because individuals like them, with names and personalities, unique skills and abilities, went, uh, they were from the Air Force, Navy, Marines, and all the nation, they went uh, where they were sent to do what they were sent to do. They didn't go alone. They went with other people next to them, just like them, other individuals with skills who did their job and went where they were sent. It was a group effort, right? Um, in 2019, God is bringing about his kingdom on earth in exactly the same way. Are you going where you were sent? And are you doing what you were sent to do? That's the question that we're going to ask today. Are we going where we were sent? And are we doing what we were sent to do? This morning, uh, we're in the last phase, uh, the Knowing, Growing, Going series. We're talking about to go. It's go time today. It's go time. I'm excited. Um, if you've been with us, you know we've been asking specific questions each week. What does it mean to know? How do I know if I know him? What does it mean to grow? How, does it, how do I know um, if I'm growing? And this week is no exception to that pattern. What does it mean to go? And how do I know that I'm going? We've been finding the answers in John 17, so you can, you can turn uh, your Bibles um, over to that. You can open them up to that. You can turn them on to that and stay, keep your finger there. Um, over and over again, we see the answers in John 17, the famous chapter Jesus prays right before the night of his arrest and his subsequent death. Um, it's his, it's his, these important words he wants to leave with his disciples, his followers, right before he departs. And this prayer in John 17 is a passing of the baton, passing of the baton. Over and over again, we hear Jesus pray that whatever the Father gave him, he is giving his disciples, right? His mission, his message, his glory, his spirit, his work, his name, and his authority, and, and more. 
so on. Jesus told his disciples earlier that they would, in fact, do more than he would do because he was going to the Father and he was going to give them the Spirit. It was a passing of the baton. So this morning, as we look at what it means to go um, and, and how we're going, we're going to look at how Jesus did it and assume that that's how we should do it, too. That makes sense. That's what we're going to do. Um, John 17, 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And, and that's what this verse means. In the same manner, in the same way that Jesus was sent in the world, so are we. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at him. How, how did he do it? What did he do? That's what we should do. So before we continue, we need to get our bearings, though. We, 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 we do have to recognize that the world in which Jesus was sent was both different and similar to our worlds, right? We are 2,000 years further down the redemptive course of history because the setting of the world in which we're sent on mission determines how we need to get, think about it and how we need to go about doing it, right? Where you are sent determines how you, how you go. The world in which Jesus entered was a world of his own people, uh, a Jewish world, the Jewish leaders. He came to his own, the Israelites, his chosen people. And we read in John 1 that he came to his own and his own didn't even recognize him or, or receive him. And in fact, they crucified him. That's the world he entered. He entered that world. A month and a half after this prayer in John 17, or uh, yeah, Jesus is on a mountain with the same guys, and Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in the books of, book of Acts, we see that it's like a roadmap for the book of Acts. We see them start in Jerusalem, and then they go to Judea, and they go to Samaria, and they go to the ends of the earth. That was their world. That was the world that God sent them into. And you've heard probably before that we, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts and we're in chapter 29 right now. And we're the results of their work right now. John 17, 20 says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe me and me through their words. So where in the world are we now in redemptive history? Where are we now? What, what world were we sent into? And this is how I believe that we should think today. This is what I think we should think about our world, that we are at the ends of the earth right now. America, Northern Colorado, Windsor is not the promised land. Sorry to say. It's a great place. People are moving here by the droves, but it's not the promised land. It's not Jerusalem. We've been, we've been dropped. I believe we should think of ourselves as being dropped behind enemy lines. We are not in a neutral zone or a no-fly zone, or no-fire zone, trying to coax the enemy on our side. We are not at home base. We're in enemy territory. That's where in the world we are. And as you've heard Dan say before in past sermons, and we've said it before, Jesus' first coming, his entering into the world that time with those people was D-Day. He established a beachhead there and then in Jerusalem. And just like on June 6, 1944, the fate of the World War II was sealed when 150,000 soldiers in the biggest invasion ever dropped in and invaded Normandy. But Europe wasn't won until over, or a little less than a year later, May 8, 1945. We are somewhere in between right now. We're marching through the Argonne Forest in France in the wintertime or something right now. 
and we're waiting for the consummation. We're waiting for Jesus to come back to win the war, victory. We are somewhere in between. We're freeing prisoners for Jesus as we go who take up the fight with us. WCC is an outpost. I believe that's how we should think about the world God's put us in today. We should assume that like Jesus was sent into the world at the precise time and place in which God the Father wanted him to establish a beachhead for his kingdom on earth, we should assume that we have been put in the precise time and place in which God wanted us to continue that advancement of the gospel, of that kingdom. Acts 17, 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, so times and place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So I'm suggesting that the answer to the questions, um, what does it mean to go and how do we know that we're going is simple. It means that, um, it means going into the world like Jesus did. That's what it means. Doing it like he did. In John 17, 18, again, I'll read it. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. So this morning, we're simply going to look at how Jesus was sent into the world. In John 17, and let that inform how we are to be sent into the world. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to try to answer three subordinate questions underneath those questions that hopefully help inform how we should go into the world like Jesus did. And here are those questions. If you're a note taker, I'm going to frame it like this. Question number one, who in the world has God given me? Who in the world has God given me? Number, th- number two, how in the world should I go? And number four, what in the world should I say? Who in the world has, has God given me? How in the world should I go? What in the world should I say? First question, who in the world has God given me? Verse 6, 17, 6. Just keep your finger open to keep the chapter open in front of you. Verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So here's an assumption. We should assume that just as Jesus was given people by the Father who would become his mission, that we also will be given people by him that will become our mission. We should look around us to see who God has given us. Who is in your circle? Who is in the world in which God has placed you? It's a good question to start with. There's four kinds of people in the world, right? Um, There's those outside our circle that know Jesus. There's those inside our circle of influence. That's what I mean by circle. It's just our proximity, our, our circle of influence, work, neighborhood, whatever. There's people outside that circle that know Jesus. There's people inside that circle that know Jesus. There's people outside that circle that don't know Jesus. And there's people inside the circle that don't know Jesus. And the fourth group is our mission field. The people inside our circle that don't know him. That's where we start. If you look at where God put you and there's no one inside your circle who doesn't follow Jesus, your circle needs to get bigger. Your territory has been claimed already. 
Your circle has been one for Christ. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Plant a flag in it and move on. Get a bigger move, move, move in advance. That's what we're called to do. We're not done yet. And then to do that, like pray and ask. What if, what if we just prayed and asked, God, who do you want me to reach? Who is it that you want to bring in my life? Because I don't have any. Every, praise God, I'm surrounded by Christians. I need to find, Lord, bring me to a place where I can find someone who doesn't know you so I can advance the gospel. That's what we should pray. There may be a half a million people living in, I don't know what the statistics are, I'm not a statistics guy, but there may be, like I heard statistics about tons of people moving in, you just have to look around yourself. Uh, tons of people moving in northern Colorado, and many of them don't know Jesus. Many, many of them, most of them don't. Many people around us don't know Jesus. And I'm guessing that almost all of that half of a million people or, or so, or whatever the number is, don't know you either. And you don't know them. They're not in your mission field, not yet, until God gives them to you. They're outside your circle until God brings them in and, and you know them. And I'm not saying that like this church building is our circle. I'm not saying that. I'm saying your workplace, your gym, your neighborhood. And, and so if there's no one in that circle, you need to get a bigger circle. And so until that, those, one of those half a million people moves in that circle, they're not your mission field yet. So pray that God would bring the right people to you that you might proclaim the gospel. The question is, who do you know inside your circle that doesn't know Jesus? Start there. That's the statistic. That's the statistic you should care about most. Start there. I bet you know their name. I bet they know you. Maybe how old they are, what their interests are, what they don't like, what they do like, what they're struggling with. Why the heck don't we start there? Why the heck don't we start with who's next to us that doesn't know Jesus? That's where we should start. It's smart, right? It makes sense. And that's what Jesus did. God gave him his people in his, that time in his place, and those are the people he reached, and then he sent them out to reach more. That's the path we're on, right? I don't know about you. This is going to sound harsh, but I don't know and care about, uh, I can't know and care about half a million people, but I can know and care about three people down the street. And I can know and care about that kid who used to be in the youth group. I can know and care about the guy across the street, and I can know and care about the guy I used to work with. And so who are your people? by name, the people that you love. Are they family members? Do your kids follow Jesus? You should start there. How about your spouse? And maybe you have, and maybe, maybe these words might seem frustrating because you've tried and you have, and, and like Jesus sent out the 72, they pursued and they, they, they went to people. God sent them to those people. God brought those people to them. And when they rejected he said, move on. And, and so that's a hard thing. It doesn't mean you stop praying. It doesn't mean you don't, don't in, in his wisdom, keep trying. But that's where we should start. So what does it mean to go? It's looking for knowing and pursuing who God already gave you. And making your world bigger if you don't find anyone. Or another way to put it, starting where you are, but not stopping where you are. So how do you know if you're going? It's self-evident. Are you doing that thing? <laughs> Are you doing that? 
Um, we know it when we're doing it, right? I think that, like if we're pursuing people. And we know when we're not. Um, when you are actively pursuing the people whom God has given you because you know and love them already, that's when we are going. That's one way we are going, like Jesus went. Next question, how in the world should we go? How in the world should I go? And from the text, I think there's two answers at least. There's probably more. There's not time to be exhaustive here. But number, answer number one, how we should go. We should go empowered by the Spirit. And number two, in unity with the church. Number one, empowered by the Spirit. We should assume that since Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit and his disciples needed the Spirit before they started their mission, that we actually need the Spirit to accomplish our mission. We should assume that. John 15, 26 through 27 says this, but when the helper comes, that's the spirit, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We are tacked on to him in that verse, not him to us. The spirit is the primary one bearing witness and we are the ones who also are, oh yeah, we also are bearing witness in that verse. It's interesting. You'd think it'd be the other way around because he's supposed to be our helper, right? Who's helping who? He's the one bearing witness and, and we also are bearing witness. And so do we think that way? Is the spirit doing the work and we are just going in his power? John 16, seven through eight. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Again, he will convict the world. It doesn't say you will convict the world. He says he will, not us. Are we helping him or is he helping us? We are called to go in his power. He's the convictor. He's the one who is, who is um, testifying and witnessing um, through us. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cooperation God, C.S. Lewis says, God tends not to do anything um, for us that we, you know, that he, he, or wait, what is it? God uh, will, seems to delegate everything he possibly can to his people. He, he likes to cooperate. He, he, he likes to empower us as we go. The next answer, how to, how the world we should go is in unity with the church. We see it all over this chapter. We should assume that because Jesus prayed that we would be one in order that the world might know and believe, Heidi, Heidi read a couple of verses in, in, in that section, that we should go into the world together. We should assume that we need to do this together. Jesus prays several times that his followers would be one so that the world might know, so that the world might believe. Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians, um, he speaks of the unity of the body. Um, of our varying gifts and how that, how that builds the body. And it builds it from within and from without. And so we go in those gifts and we need one another to go because we have those different gifts. We all have different capacities. Maybe you're an outgoing, you know, preach it from the, from the rooftops kind of person, gatherer type person, you know, or maybe you're the one-on-one kind of person and that, that other thing freaks you out. Um, it takes all kinds, and that's why God has made all kinds in his church. You don't have to be what you're not because the person next to you is, is that. We're all called to be witnesses, but we're not all called to be Paul. It takes an army and a nation to win a war, and it takes a church to be on mission.
I think that's how we're to think of this. And if it's, if, it, if it's true that for us, God sending us into the world means that we are sent behind enemy lines. If that's true, if, if that's the way we should think about this, that we're at the ends of the earth and we're behind enemy lines, how in the world should we go? We should go empowered by the Spirit and we should go together. We shouldn't go alone. Um, many paratroopers on D-Day were dropped in uh, behind enemy lines and there was so much confusion there was so much like anti-aircraft fi- fire. There was so much, uh, it was such a massive operation. There was communication issues. And many of these paratroopers landed losing all their gear and they landed with like a knife and that's it. And with not in their drop zone, they didn't know anybody, they didn't see anybody around them or just isolated in a field. And many of them died. And the ones who lived were the ones who found groups of Americans quickly to fight with. And they fought with knives as a group until they could get more weapons. And they advanced because they were together. If we go without being empowered by the Spirit, and if we go alone, we'll be crushed. Lone soldiers die, and disarmed soldiers die. And and here's the deal. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. We should think of the lost people in our world as the turf that we're fighting for. We're in a turf war. The enemy is the one or ones, plural, that are trying to keep that turf for themselves. We're in a turf war for people's souls. Paul said this, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Humans are not our enemy, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The heavenly places means not earthly places. It's unseen. It's an unseen realm. There are intelligent, evil, spiritual powers and forces, if we have to believe, if we believe Paul's words, that are at work trying to claim human souls for themselves, trying to keep them for themselves, their turf for themselves. They are the enemies, not the lost people around us. The lost people around us is what and who the battle is for, is over. God wants to claim them for himself, just like he claimed you. You are his turf. His flag has been placed on you. You are his. He claimed you. You are Yahweh, God's turf. And, and he wants more. That's the war. Matthew 16, Jesus was talking about building his church and talking, describing it, and, he, and he's up on a hill, and he, and he, and he talks about uh, growing his church through his disciples, and he says the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. The gates of hell is a defensive. Have you thought about this? The gates, gates are defensive, not offensive. And so Jesus is saying the church advancing, the gates of hell, the defenses of hell will not be able to stand against the advancement of the church collectively. But then we read 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And when we're isolated, that's when we're vulnerable, and that's when we're on the defense. That's when we're attacked. But when we go together, we advance in the gates of hell. Jesus promised we'll not be able to stand against, and that's, what we, that's where we are right now. And I never really knew how effective this was or how this worked. It was always confusing to me until... Um, I, until recently in, in our small group here at church, I just have to boast a little bit about my small group. But like when one person um, texted 
the whole group and, and asked to pray for him uh, because he was going to reach um, um, a lost friend. And then everyone said praying, and then this person met with them, and then this person's continuing to meet, and, the, and everyone, I see everyone praying for each other. And then, and then the next person got courage, and then they're going to reach out to their coworker. And then the next person got courage, and that person's reaching out to their neighbors. And we have most of our group, we're just praying for each other to go. And it's really cool, and it's exciting. And that's what I think it is. It's, it, it's at the very least prayer, and maybe it's the very most we could do. Maybe it's the best we can do is pray for each other. Maybe that's how we go together. Because that's why we need the Spirit, right? He's the one that's doing the battle that we can't do in an unseen realm while we go just meet with people and talk with them and share the gospel. That's, it's, a, it's a cooperation, a spiritual cooperation and a physical one. So how do you know you're going? If you're afraid to go into your world without your brothers and sisters praying for you, if you feel like you need their encouragement to keep going, if you feel like you need the Spirit to give you words and to go before you as you go, then it's highly likely you're actually going. If going by yourself doesn't freak you out and you rarely pray for the Spirit to work in you as you go, you're not going. I'm guessing. We go together empowered by the Spirit. That's why we need to pray. That's why we have the Spirit. Last question. What in the world do I say? Okay, we're on mission. God's put us where we are. He's given us people to reach. What do we say? How do we, what do we say to them? If Jesus has sent us into this world as he was sent into the world, then we should assume that the main thing Jesus wanted to tell his disciples, whom the Father gave him, is the main thing we need to tell those whom he's given us. It's the same message that he had. And what was that? And it's all through John. Like, more than any other gospel, John talks about life and eternal life. And this Jesus came to give and to preach and proclaim eternal life. John twenty thirty one is the... Uh, the purpose statement for this book, John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus came to proclaim the hope of eternal life to all who believe in him. Our message is the same as his. Eternal life can only be found in and through Jesus. That's the message, eternal life. But what is that? Eternal life isn't merely getting into heaven and avoiding hell. Dan spoke of this two weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't listened to it. The no message. I encourage you to go back. Eternal life doesn't just speak of the quantity of life like it never ends. It's forever. And it doesn't just mean the quality of that life. No more tears or pain or sorrow, even though those things are true. That's not the essence of it. The essence of eternal life. That's what it's talking about. The, the eternal life is talking about the essence of life, not the quality or the quantity of life. The essence of life is a relationship. John 17, 3, one of my favorite verses. It's awesome. And this is eternal life. Jesus defines it for us, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The essence of eternal life is an intimate covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son 
by the Spirit. What in the world do we say to people that he brings to us? We don't merely describe a sacrificial system to them, although we, we should, but we don't merely do that. A merely a sacrificial system of salvation so that in believing that system, people can get out of hell into heaven. That's not the main goal. Our mission isn't not just to get people into heaven or get people out of hell. Those are the effects of the mission. We don't bring people to heaven. We bring people to a person. There are many people who believe the system but don't know the person. There's many people who, who raised hands and have gone forward in, in events because they wanted to go to a place called heaven and get a ticket out of hell, but they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't really want God. They just want the stuff. Everyone wants heaven. It's not a good selling point. They don't want God. My favorite part of my week is when I get to meet with a friend who doesn't know the only true God. And Jesus, the one he sent. I've known him for 12 years. There's been a few times where I've shared the gospel, but I've been, I've been slacking. I've been holding back. And so I met with him, and I, um, you know, small talk for about an hour because I was nervous. and like, oh, man, what's he going to say? Because I wanted to, I had an agenda. And I just said to him, I just was real with him. I said, hey, you know what? I, I, I wanted to meet with you for, I have an agenda. Um, it's cool that you believe what you believe, and I believe, you know what I believe, and we've been cool with each other. You know, that's great, but here's the deal. Um, I believe what I believe is right, and I believe what you believe is wrong, and I believe it has life and death implications. I believe, and, and I want to hang out with you 10,000 years from now, I said, and I've been holding back, and he says, I know you've been holding back, and um, I said, I care for you. And, and I just feel like I need to be real with you, and I would love to, would you be willing to read scripture with me once a week, and, and I want you to see this person that I know and love named Jesus. Would you be willing to look and, and just see if you, you, might, you might think he's real too? He said, sure. I've been one too anyway. And I'm like, Okay, and so I'm like, cool, and on the inside, I'm dancing a jig, and, and, uh, and we've been meeting ever since, and it's like, I'd, I'd want to do that, like, full-time. I want to do that 40 hours a week. I want to do that more than that. I just want him and his family to know the love of a father that will never let him go. I want them to have eternal life, the essence, which is relationship with the person, the God who made them. This is what God wants we're almost done here. Jesus says this in, in verse 24. And, and whenever, you, whenever you hear the words, I desire, coming out of the mouth of God in Scripture, pay attention. This is awesome. This is what God wants. This is what God wants here. Jesus says it. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. May be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see uh, do you, uh, how huge this is? He wants people to be with him in all his glory, in all his fullness, 
Sinful people, redeemed people that he has um, bought with his blood and made glorious like himself so that they can be with him in his presence without burning up. And that's the, that's the purpose. All that God did in sending his son, all that Jesus did in the world is for that purpose to be with his people. With is my favorite word in scripture. I think it, it, I would argue it may be the most important word maybe next to God and Jesus in the Bible, with, because everything that was done, every, it's where it all started, it's where it all ends, and, it's, and everything that was done in between is for with. What does it mean to go? Proclaiming eternal life as a relationship with a person to those who long to know the affections of a father that will never let them go. My friend doesn't know that love. His family doesn't know that love. Do you have people in your life that don't know that love, that don't know that kind of person? How do you know you're going when your love for people compels you to bring them that message and nothing will stop you? Let me pray. The worship team will come back up and close us. Dear Father, we uh, thank you for putting us into this world. Lord, sometimes I want to be out of it. Sometimes we all want to be out of it. It's hard. It's dark. It does feel like a war zone sometimes. But God, we know we have your spirit and we know we have each other. And we, and we know, God, we, we, just, we just have you. We thank you for that truth. Lord, we need you and we need each other. We need your spirit to go into this world. So help us to be sent like you were sent. Help us see people like you see people. And Lord, help us know who you want to bring in our lives that we might share this amazing message that you who made them want to be with them forever. God, help us. We need your help. God, help us be a church that advances your gospel, not afraid, not fearful, um, but advances together, and we trust that um, you will accomplish your kingdom on earth as in, as in heaven. And Lord, use us. Use us to do that, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.